Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Freedom of speech or freedom of the press has been a key ingredient of healthy democracies since, well, since healthy democracies have been around. But what does it mean to be a good journalist? Where do we draw the lines between freedom of press and national security? How do you keep a newspaper's ethics in check without compromising its values? As Israel's leading liberal national daily newspaper, Haaretz, and its journalists must struggle with this question on a daily basis, particularly the person who runs the paper. So here to help us answer those questions is Aluf Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz. Aluf Ben has been published in a number of international newspapers, including the New York Times, The Guardian, and Newsweek. He joins us today to discuss journalism. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. How are you, Aluf? Good morning. Well, good morning. Yeah. And we're recording in the studios of Haaretz. Yeah. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Thank you for cool. having us. Not much places uh, like these are still left here in Israel. Classic newsrooms, you know, I think. Well, this is... Actually, a new building, uh, which is more, you know, looks more like a classic newsroom than before. Before that, we were in a long corridor with small rooms. <laughs> okay. So, let's start with the most basic of questions. What, what to you, is journalism? Curiosity. Okay. And, uh, you know, being curious all the time and... Uh, and uh, You know, and, and, <clears throat> and want to, to tell people your story or your version of life or your version of the story. Is it curious about, I mean, you know, would you call TMZ journalism? If of course. Yeah? Yeah, of course. Okay. You know, readers are interested in the readers, viewers, customers, uh, clicks, no matter how you call them today, uh, are interested in what they have to say. And do you find any, like, this truth... play a factor at all or is it just is it curiosity for the truth is it curiosity in general of course the truth is a factor you were you were looking for facts yeah we're not looking for uh, storytelling fiction mm-hmm. but the audience is still very important no matter which kind of journalism you're doing that's what you're telling us basically you know the, the basic of all art uh, you know in any form is audience I mean otherwise uh, you know even the the Greeks used to ask whether the best poem written hidden in a, in a drawer is a poem or not or what is it Of course you need an audience it's a, it's a conversation and even much more so in the digital age because before that in both print and broadcast journalism it was kind of a one-way conversation mm-hmm. that you could you, know, you could have polled your readers and uh, you could have uh, read uh, you know, letters to the editor and stuff like that. But in the digital age, it's a two-way conversation because whenever we see the traffic meter or whenever we read comments or whenever we see what people are sharing on Facebook or Twitter, mm-hmm. that's a conversation. They're talking to us. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the role of the audience today is much stronger does, uh, than it used to be in classic journalism. Does that not, in your view, somehow uh, influence the... 
I mean, for lack of a better word, purity of journalism, the fact that we have this conversation going since shouldn't journalism be something, uh, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, but shouldn't journalism be something isolated, standalone, that isn't influenced by outside but sources? But it, but it is influenced. If you're, if you're, first of all, if you're trying to tell a story about the world, mm-hmm. then it's influenced by the world. We're not talking about alien civilizations yeah. here and uh, science fiction, which is also influenced by the world in a different way. Now, let's go to journalism. We're shaped by the world and we're shaped by the audience. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you're an ultra-Orthodox uh, newspaper uh, trying to reach out to ultra-Orthodox readers in Bnei Brak or in Betar Elit and so on, I guess you'd be very different uh, than TMZ. Well, if you put uh, if you put uh, the last words of the rabbi from Gur in TMZ, it would be out of place. Mm-hmm. Can so, be quite so of, cor- of course, yeah, it would be sensational. <laughs> uh, but and if but if you repeated, some readers of TMZ might switch to other places to find what they were looking for. So it's always connected with an audience. Yeah, it's not. It's not now. The question I, I think, if I could rephrase your question. Please. It's it's how can how how is your authority as the arbiter of the news that's fit to print etc uh, is influenced or eroded by uh, watching the traffic meter mm-hmm. uh, because 30 years ago uh, in subscription journal, in subscription based newspapers like Haaretz uh, you could say okay people pay me to get the paper at their door and Within the space I have on the pages, I could do whatever I want, whatever I feel important, whatever I feel interesting. And I would say that the balance between uh, important and interesting, in other words, what I want and what the readers want, uh, could be 90% what I want and 10% interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today it's different. It's not the opposite. And I think the challenge here is that if there is a story you want to tell, because you think it is important, because you want to change, you know, you want to influence social or political change or whatever, then you have to find the best way to tell it to your audience. And, and here, the traffic meters and, and all the other statistics that we have in the digital age help you, because what's the point in writing the best uh, uh, investigative piece about something when with only two or three people reading it? So part of the job is being a, a good storyteller? Of course. You have to uh, engage your audience, just like in any other medium. Yeah, just like you do, and just like, like, just like, just like any, just like, by the way, just like any two people engage in, in two-person conversation. Yeah, in doing. any activity. <laughs> yeah. But what you're describing is something that seems to, like, veer more and more away from this... Or maybe not. Maybe the maybe ideal not, of journalism. The ideal of objectivity, meaning there is there is a truth. We tell it, and we don't need to, you know, code it or or dress it in any way. But but yeah, but it's it has nothing to do with objectivity. First of all, uh, there is no such thing as objectivity. I, I give you an example. Uh, when you report, when you report uh, um, the a few examples. When we report the value of the shekel uh, versus the dollar mm-hmm. every day, there's very little to add beyond the number. Mm-hmm. Once you add analysis, why the shekel uh, appreciated or depreciated, 
then you have judgment. Then you have to include some version of the story and exclude something else. Now let's take it to the next level. The Prime Minister gives a speech. Mm-hmm. The speech is about 2,000 words. You have space for 300 words, and your readers have the attention span maybe for 100 words, or even just for the headline. Mm-hmm. Now in the speech you could find 15 different headlines. Then, then subjectivity comes in because you have to decide what to take out of that speech, put it up front, the headline, the sub, first paragraphs, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Just like the prime minister himself had to build it in a certain way to include all the talking points in a certain order and the punchline in a certain place and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And imagine that if you're a TV journalist and you don't have 100 words, you have maybe 30 words or, or a couple of sentences to get from this 2,000-word piece, mm-hmm. then then uh, your judgment gets in much heavier than, than this. And this is objective. You don't change anything. These are, these are the words of the prime minister. You're taking the quotes out of his mouth verbatim. But you can't take it all. Uh-huh. And even if you do, even if you put the entire speech, there's a headline. There's a headline. And so will the headline be, will the headline be, no settlements will ever be removed, or will the headline be, uh, I'm willing to meet Abbas uh, anywhere, anytime, uh, mm-hmm. just, I'm just waiting for the call, and I'm going to be very flexible. So, okay, so that, that I totally agree. But do you see it? No, but, but, it, but it gets, there's a deeper level to that. Yeah. And this is what stories uh, do you decide to cover at all. Mm-hmm. And here, and here, uh, and I think here is where the difference among different media outlets comes to play. More than in the, the words of the basic story, or the basic TV piece or whatever. It's in the decision what to cover and how to call it and where to place it. And this is your decision mainly as the editor, right? Yeah. Me and, you know, and all the and other the team, editors and the team and, and, you the, have the, and, final the, and the, and the, and the, uh, and, and the foundations and principles of ours that go back almost a hundred years. Mm-hmm. You mean ideological foundations, ethical foundations, which kind of foundations? All of, them. All of the above. So you consider that? For example, we don't have a gossip column and we never had. And several times, you know, I've been here for almost 30 years, several times in the past, There were discussions of it, uh, and it never happened. And at the same time, I don't believe that, uh, that TMZ has a kind of political an editorial with, with uh, telling the voters, telling the readers whether to vote for Clinton or Trump or, yeah. or in the Senate race or, or what have you. So, so these are the, these are the key editorial decisions. Maybe that's why he already lost. You know? <laughs> these are the key editorial decisions. Because, mm-hmm. because for example, here at Haaretz, We cover uh, the, the, the plight of <coughs> African asylum seekers, mainly from uh, Trans-Sudan mm-hmm. in Israel, uh, while in the other, uh, uh, in the mainstream Hebrew language media in Israel, they're mostly called infiltrators, and the coverage is following the government line, which is that these people should be expelled as soon as possible or locked, or locked up until they're willing to be expelled. Uh, we're the only ones who cover the occupation and settlements in the West Bank and the, and the residual <coughs> Israeli control over Gaza 
from a perspective that takes into account how the Palestinians feel. You actually have a, a place in your, on your website in Hebrew, I don't know if in English you have it, where you monitor how many hours of electricity have been today in Gaza, right? Yeah. In English you have that also? I don't remember. No, no, I don't think so. But that's an example, like this is a thing you won't see anywhere else, I no. think, in Israeli media. No, in Israeli media, uh, usually, again, when it, when it bothers to cover... When it bothered to cover it, the situation uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians, it, it doesn't call it occupation anymore. Uh, this word disappeared from the mainstream lingo. How do they call it then? They don't. <laughs> they don't. They just <laughs> say the names? Palestinians. Yeah, who needs names? Just call it the Palestinians or, or you know, the settlers vis-a-vis the government. Uh, they, don't, they don't call it uh, in, any th- in any way that they, th- that they think might alienate. Some of their audience. In other words, what you're telling us is that you have ideology and you are not shameful in... in Everybody making... has ideology. Even those who don't say occupation, they have ideology too. But yours is really out there, always. Right? Everybody, everybody's is out there always. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not... Look, I, I, would, I would love to say that we are the only ones with principles and all the others only care about, uh, about uh, reaching out to the widest possible audience. But I don't think so. I think that anybody has an ideology, mm-hmm. even if it's embedded and not, and not shouted out and they don't have uh, daily editorials and we have... So there is no nuanced uh, position of, of uh, Channel 2 News or of, of Channel 10 or of, uh, of Idiot Achonot. But it doesn't matter. If, if you watch, if you read them, you understand what they're trying to tell you. So if, they put, if they put on the front page every other day a picture of uh, female combat soldiers in the IDF, then you think that their ideology is to encourage young people, and young women in particular, to join the IDF and go, uh, and, and go, and go to enlist into a combat unit. Well, if, you, if, uh, if you're trying to reach out to... An Arab uh, audience or an ultra orthodox audience in Israel, clearly female combat soldiers is not what you would have put or even report in in your channel or, or yeah. I don't believe that in in Radio Shams in Nazareth they have uh, they have uh, um, they have the hour of soldiers where soldiers uh, get calls from their moms right, like right. the voice of mother in in, in the IDF radio and mm-hmm. at the same time I don't think that there is uh, That there is uh, um, there is no Arabic language program in IDF radio although there are I don't ten percent right. or so of the IDF are Arabic speakers right mm-hmm. they don't have their hour there so there is ideology yeah. anytime anywhere so going back to the the uh, point you made about calling it the occupation whereas the other source media outlets don't call it that would you say that that choice for example and I'm kind of going back even farther now is a is a subjective choice is it i mean is that a fact is that something that you would say you need to call this an occupation because that is the truth or would you say this in is, my opinion it's a matter of perspective it's meaning, an occupation we call it so because it's the truth and you okay. know i can give you all the legal documentation and and uh, referencing uh, to prove it yeah it's not something that we invented we don't call it uh, um, the alien invasion of uh, of uh, You'd get know. more readers if you did. <laughs> we might, we might. And the others, by the way, the others, again, if you go to the right-wing uh, media outlets, they would argue that there is no occupation because of some other legal construction. 
which is based on the League of Nations, but ignores the United Nations, which is the more recent uh, international body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mainstream in the middle, they would just, would just ignore it. I mean, mm-hmm. some of their columnists would say occupation, but uh, not in the news section. So where do and, you... And, and by the way, the, the, their ideolo- ideology, I think, is not based on any legal or political consideration, but on the, on the assessment that it would alienate uh, some of their readers. And why do so? Why yeah. alienate the readers when you can just... Write what they want to hear. Uh, yeah, exactly. So where do you draw the line between, um, if there is a line to be drawn, and if you think it's important, between... What goes into your paper as reporting and what goes into your paper as opinion and analysis? Or is there no line to be drawn because everybody is... No, there is. There is. Look, there, it's not, it's not clear-cut definition. If, if you read the uh, op-eds, I don't know, Tom Friedman's op-eds in the New York Times, it's also based on reporting. He mm-hmm. goes out, he talks to people. You know, he went to the Saudi crown prince 15 years ago and got the Saudi peace plan. That was that was prime time reporting. I was diplomatic correspondent at the time, and like everybody else, I was very jealous of Tom Friedman scooping me as a columnist. Mm-hmm. And but it but you know it appeared in the opinion section, and he wrote the opinion that that was a very good idea <clears throat> to use and so on. But it was reporting, and at the same time, you have opinion and reporting. If once you decide to report something, and once you decide that the headline look there is a dispute. Which side is the headline going to be? The what police? Mean? I mean, someone is accused of something. Uh, would you take, and in the headline, is it going to be the police, quote, uh, he or she did something, or the quote was, <clears throat> the quote would be, uh, Netanyahu, nothing happened. You know, we have a very important uh, mm. police suspect these days in Israel, the prime minister. Right. <laughs> so in Israel, I own the, uh, <clears throat> the headline would be Netanyahu, I did nothing. And in all the other media, it would be the police, we suspect Netanyahu. Israel Ayom so so. is the newspaper by, some would argue it's not a newspaper, but uh, by Sheldon uh, Adelson. It is. It, it is, is a newspaper, okay. So it is the most widely circulated newspaper in weekdays in Israel. For free, it is given for free, and it is financed by Sheldon Adelson, who also... Which, by the way, there's a guy across the street handing them out. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, yeah. I'm saying he's on your turf. <laughs> no, no. You guys need to... No worry, just, just, he just won't be there by nightfall. <laughs> for, for proper disclosure... Uh, no, they're, I think they're when they leave when, they, when uh, their stack is gone. They, they just yeah. leave. Once in Purim, uh, I dressed up as an Israeli um, <laughs> delivery person. <laughs> did, you, did you hand them out? Did you hand out really soon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Purim party, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, you didn't print special ones out with uh, no, fake no, headlines? No, although, although, although for proper disclosure, Haaretz, the Haaretz printing plant... Uh, printed Israel I own for seven years right ah. they bought their own printing press oh wow okay so how is a paper like Haaretz run tell us a little bit about that what is your day-to-day and what uh, what decisions do you make the day-to-day is you know always always trying to catch up with uh, whatever is happening in the main areas that we cover that are that are you know politics and Uh, economy and culture mm-hmm. and sports section is is a very good one but it's not the front of arts and and never has been and um, the, the the main decisions first of all are man management decisions 
mm-hmm. uh, appointing people to positions, uh, deciding on different, you know, the different mix, especially in the weekend paper that is that is uh, very heavy with uh, several supplements. Um, trying to respond to the endless pressure for management to streamline. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? We mean that you know newspaper business is not uh, as lucrative as it used to be fifteen um, twenty years ago before the invention of Google and Facebook and before the invention of smartphones uh, and in the old print days um, newspapers had a quasi monopoly on you know on the classifieds It was a great source of income for their owners but you know it allowed the editorial staff to To live uh, quite comfortably and to think forward towards a very long career in journalism, this is no longer the case. Salaries went down, classifieds went out to to uh, internet providers mm-hmm. who gave them out for free. And then commercial advertising is also going out of newspapers and into giants like Google and Facebook who are not you know we're not competition to them in any way. More and more they control our distribution too, because most of the online traffic gets to news what news sites through Facebook and Google. You're dependent on them growingly so. Now we are the only ones who also sell uh, digital subscriptions in Israel right the others the others uh, are free model based on advertising and uh, and it's also a struggle, so you know you have to think forward the the two main challenges. That an editor in my position is facing today, one is common to anybody around the world, and that is I mean in, in legacy media, and that is the move of your readers, your viewers, your listeners, everybody to the smartphone. Now, if you don't know how to give them uh, um, as quick and as accurate a story as possible uh, online and as fast as possible will, uh, yeah, so yeah. as, as quickly and, and as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. accurately mm-hmm. as possible. They would leave you. They have all the choice in the world out there. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, switching cost even to go to the, to the grocer and get uh, the competition newspaper. It's no longer the case. So you have to be uh, uh, very differentiated to survive in, in terms of form and to, you know, and to open up to new ways of storytelling, podcasts, video. We were not trained to do that. Um, Very quick reporting and uh, with as many facts as possible as you could gather because you want to push to to appear on people's screens before the competition does that pressure ever uh crack like does it you know there's that very famous scene and I don't know if you saw newsroom uh no. where they're about to I can't remember what story it was but there's this big story breaking and they're about to break it on the news but they you know you By some sort of ethical code they have to have like two sources or I don't know what they decided and they decided not to break it and then you know all the other news stations broke it and then they discovered that it was a false story do you ever find yourself in a position where that where you lose sight of like I mean is there a clear set of rules okay we need two sources who are verifiable this it, it depends it depends on the story you don't need two sources you know when the Bank of Israel tells you the level of the foreign currency reserves of Israel, Usually, you don't need other sources. You believe them. You trust mm-hmm. them. Uh, you trust the weather forecast. 
Mm-hmm. Even though it's shaking. Sometimes, even yeah. though it's shaking. Mm-hmm. No, you trust beforehand, yeah. before publication. You don't you don't say we need two weather forecasters. Nobody does that. Yeah. <laughs> so so and you and you don't use uh two restaurant critics for each restaurant because maybe one yeah. like the dish and or you know, with the one came in the <laughs> when the when the service staff was sick or whatever. So It, you can't you can't do a matrix like that the main question that we have is not about two sources it's about whether to issue a push when you get just the headline uh-huh. and then and then when people click it they get nothing they get uh, more information coming soon, soon coming yeah. soon uh, stay tuned or wait until you have some more uh, facts and some more and some more content to tell knowing that you're gonna lose the race and With the other with the other sites who are publishing empty pushes like that so that's that's a dilemma uh-huh. and you have to deal with it every day because there are stories where you don't want to wait when 300 over 300 people are killed in a terrorist attack in the Sinai across the border then you want to report it just with the, with the, as little detail as you have and yeah. tell people to watch the developing story because we know that these stories are You don't get the full picture until but several hours you, later. But how do you know, for example, it's 300? I mean, maybe I'm getting no, nitpicky here. No, you don't. You don't. You don't. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. You're saying a terrorist attack in a multi... Uh, you know... Uh, 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 300 <laughs> reported dead or something. No, but before... Many are dead. Before 300 yeah. reported dead. It's a deadly terrorist attack in the Sinai at the mosque. Mm-hmm. And dozens are presumed killed. And then... It takes time until the area is clear and they, and, and, they, and they get to, to okay. count the dead. And, and you know, we have, we have uh, all of us here has enough, have enough experience with that uh, from the Intifada. Yeah. What happened during the Intifada? You, were, you got it wrong sometimes? No. It's not a, no, no, you no, 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 you don't get it wrong. But it takes a while until, right. until the full picture emerges. I want to ask you a loop because you case. mentioned um, no but wait yeah, sorry I said there were two challenges one yes. is the form how to deal with with the move of the shift from print or broadcast to online to the smartphone mm-hmm. the other is the content and here we are in a more unique position at Haaretz uh, the online the online issue is coming as it's coming to all newspaper publishers and editors around the world. At Haaretz, we have also the unique position of being, as you mentioned, the liberal voice in Israel. And uh, which today, facing, facing a very right-wing government, we are kind of a very oppositional voice in Israeli society. And the rest of the media, even when they are critical of Netanyahu, the prime minister, of his personality, of his wife, of the way, uh, of the way he handles the government or whatever, They do agree with the basic tenets of his policy and with his narrative. We're the only ones who are doubting that narrative. We're doubting that Israel is, is a victim that's about to face the second Holocaust every day and every second. And struggling to survive. Struggling to survive and that you can't trust anybody else and, uh, and so on and so forth. We're the only ones who doubt that and we're the only ones and, and where it comes to head with, with our readers. Um, and w- we crit- when we criticize the conduct of war by the IDF, that is when you get into trouble with your own readers, not with the competition. What kind of trouble, for example? Cancellation of subscriptions. 
when you you mean masses sorry yeah masses, masses no one person one masses person who... is one each each subscriber that is lost either to natural causes or or because they were angry or or even worse because they were bored by the paper is a tragedy but when you multiply it by by a couple of thousand then and it happened. then it's a crisis it happened during the last war in Gaza why because we published an opinion piece by Gideon Levy criticizing the morals of IDF pilots who by then bomb it was before the ground offensive the main the main operation was bombing the private homes of Hamas officials and officers in order to deter them and he doubted that uh, The morality of that decision because of collateral damage uh, because because implications. because because it's embedded in that if you yeah if you if you if you go after private residences there are always the kids who didn't hear the the knock on the you know the the, the warnings or what they call knocking on the roof on the roof. There, there are no yeah. sirens in Gaza there are no air defense mm-hmm. sirens in Gaza so they throw like a small bomb to warn people to run out of the building But mm-hmm. then you have you know the kids play on the beach playing on the beach or whatever who didn't hear and, and got killed hundreds of incidents like that and uh, that was that was very difficult uh, to our to our readers mm-hmm. not to the competition criticizing us by the way not the IDF the IDF and even the Air Force in particular never um, tried to block or censor us or to severe any relations with us because of that on the contrary they were always proud to say that this specific piece was a matter of debate in the Air Force squadrons and that commanders and, and the pilots talked about it they disagreed this piece but this it was issue. not banned not the piece nobody else specifically the article th- there's there was no one else at Haaretz or let alone in the other media in Israel who even raised the issue Mm-hmm. and How even that and even that was was a kind of 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 a, of a one-time piece that was not repeated it's not it was not that every day we repeated the same story yeah. and that was that was would you repeat having known yes know? because because look the point the point if you have if you have based uh, uh, moral arguments about the conduct of war then the time to say them is Is during the war and there is a there is a history to that in Israeli in the past wars of what we used to call uh, shooting and crying which was you know you do whatever you do in wartime you're silent and then after the war when you can't bring back people from the dead or from whatever happened to them then you say well we shouldn't have done this like that we should have been more careful and so on and so forth But here was a very popular operation against Hamas, which is a very unpopular uh, organization uh, uh, among the Israeli public that tried to fire rockets at Israeli cities and villages, not so successfully because of Iron Dome, because of uh, anti-rocket systems. And then, and then uh, they fired, uh, unfortunately, more successfully, motor bombs into the, the um, villages around Gaza for 50 days. To criticize the morality of the IDF at that time is difficult but then that's your job that's your responsibility if you want if you want to influence if you want to you're not going to call off the war but if you want to let people think about the way it's handled or the, or the point in going there at all then so the time no to do it is real time you have no regrets about no. that do, how do you feel about no the... but but it cost us with the 2000 that's what I'm asking cancellations and most of them 
in, in the past when things like that happened, most most of these uh, ex-subscribers would come back after several months when you know the war ended and the atmosphere cooled off and people moved on to do other things. In this case, most of them, the vast majority, stayed out. I mean, we sold we sold many more new subscriptions uh, to digital to weekend during the war, but uh, but for six weeks. Publisher and I and our public editor had to correspond with many of these angry readers. And I've learned something very important from that. And that was that there's one, there was, by the way, if the same article, it was called Haraim Latais, which is the wicked to the, uh, to the, um, to flight, to flight, which is, it's, it's, uh, it's untranslatable because it's lost in translation because it's, it was a paraphrase on Hatovim Latais. The good to flight, which is the slogan of the Israeli Air Force, has been for yeah. decades. The coined, best go to the Air Force. To the Air the Force. best go to pilot school. It was coined by the former, the builder of the Israeli Air Force, uh, it, the late state president, Ezra Weitzman. Right. And uh, so he played on that. But many of these pilots belong, and the reserve pilots, and the parents of the pilots, and the neighbors of the pilots belong to the social group that reads Haaretz. Right. If it were the same article, But instead of the pilots, it would have said border police or infantry, much less reaction. Why? Because people hate one thing. They hate to read in their own paper that they are less than moral or less moral than they think of themselves. Right. And this is true, by the way, across the board. People hate uh, this this uh, twisted image of themselves, of, of how they want to see themselves as very moral and, and righteous people. And uh, most people who get angry at op-eds are because of that. And, and here you have the case of our own readers telling us, I have been a leftist all my life. I belong to the actual, actual, from actual correspondence. I belong to the management, to the Central Committee of Merits of the left-wing party. And you will not tell me that I am not a moral person. And you won't tell me that I am less moral than Hamas and so on and so forth. Who, so are, you? Who are you to, to doubt my morals? What do you respond to that? I responded by, by analyzing the piece sentence by sentence and showing how this was backed by evidence. This was not just some, right. something out of the air. So what's the But lesson? What about, what about, I'm sorry, I have to ask. What about the title? Because the title is... The, is, title, is, the is, title was what made people angry because, because most people did not... Very few people read it. Was it, it was published on, on Monday. Uh-huh. the weekday paper which is a small circulation in print and online it was not highly trafficked but what people did they they pictured the headline and then they they shared it on Facebook right the headline mm-hmm. and the sub uh, the headline, paragraph the headline the headline uh, was what made people angry and very few I, people bothered to read the piece so d- what about the choice to, to publish that I'm saying what would your response be to people who said that That title is provocative it's I mean it is it's provocative but criticize but... the Air Force but it's another thing to you know say that our pilots are inherently by the way know, the English, or evil the English version was headlined something like from 40,000 feet the ground looks different or something very very <laughs> benign without any meaning and and I think there you were, maybe maybe there were 200 people 200 who, pages. who coins the Hebrew title? The author. The author, okay. And so, so how, how do you feel about the choice to, 
to publish it under that title. I feel that this was the right thing to do because if you want, if you if you want to say something, then say it. Don't hide and say, okay, we. You know, as reporters, uh, when you're scooped out, as a reporter, when you're scooped out, and your news editor calls you in the morning to say, hey, the competition had that story, and your immediate reaction will always be, but I had it two weeks before. How come we didn't see it? Yeah, it was buried in paragraph 34 in the, you know, in the, in the, uh, um, in the page of the back page, in the back page where the obituaries are. <laughs> You had it there, and then, and when you look back, it is there. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the point? The point was to was to not to back off, but to raise a very important issue for discussion. And again, the discussion, rather than being about the Air Force, it was about freedom of speech at wartime. But by the way, this is this is not a new phenomenon. You know, the, this piece did not invent anything. Haaretz had the same issues with its readers uh, since the first Lebanon war in 1982, mm-hmm. when Zev Schiff, our military analyst at the time, correspondent, argued about against the, the um, morality and even against the decision to go to that war. And at first, when it appeared to be a major success story, everybody was against him, and hundreds of people canceled their subscriptions because of Zev Schiff, who is now... He, 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 passed passed, away. he passed away 10 years ago, but he appears to be the, the voice of the security establishment in Israel. And he, and he faced the same criticism back then. And then during the first intifada, Haaretz was the first to rely on reports by Palestinian sources, who before that were seen as a bunch of liars, propagandist liars. Uh, but uh, the IDF uh, was not very happy to report accurately about the way they they uh, tried to crush the Palestinian uprising in the West Bank and Gaza. So we relied on Palestinian sources. And again, people were angry at us. How come you rely on the enemy during war? And it, re- it repeated time and again. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask so you... So this is, uh, this is something unique. In the case of the, of the Netanyahu government, first of all, it's not war. It's peacetime and, and it's about political debate. But here too, we have, we have uh, several certain positions that are diametrically opposed to the government positions and we're the only ones who are raising these flags but would you say that and out. would you say that Haaretz um, uses provocation as a tool to get its voice out there you could put it this way but I think no <laughs> it's but subjective. I think no but it's subjective look what is provocation the thing is if you want to say something say it out loud don't hide and, and people won't read you no, but loudness is a, is a matter of decibel levels. I'm saying provocation is a matter of semantics, but even beyond semantics, it's a matter of choice of... It's an art. Yeah. It's in the eye of the, of the reader. <laughs> One yeah. person's provocation is the other person's uh, poetry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to ask you before we go, do you think the days of Woodward and Bernstein are gone? Not at all. You know, the first thing I tell... new editors and new reporters. The first basic textbook of journalism is All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein. Even now when we know the keys to the puzzle of who was Deep Throat and how the... Liam Neeson, uh, of course. And yeah, and how, the, and how, the, and how the, the, their research was conducted. And, and I read, I don't know, maybe, maybe 30 books about Watergate throughout the years after that. But this is still the best book about journalism. 
And I think that only recently we saw with the, with the Harvey Weinstein scandal, that was not politics, but that was basic all-time reporting and, and, and um, going to sources, trying to, to convince them to speak uh, and not be afraid. And, and there's no other way to do the job. You can't do a Woodward and Bernstein-style uh, investigation for any story. And even there, you know, uh, it took a while for their stories to move up the political echelons uh, because, you know, Nixon won the election after their stories. Right. The, the best part of the reporting was before the Nixon re-election. Only after that, the political machines started gearing up towards realizing what, that what they were saying was true. And at the time, they faced totally hostile... I mean, they were, they were kind of the hearts of... Washington in, in the Nixon administration. They appeared to be a hopeless case of a bunch of liberal, pro-Kennedy liberals who had uh, who, who uh, wanted to get Nixon out and not the mainstream story that we see today about Watergate. So and you're always on the lookout for, for, for the, the next, next Watergate. Watergate. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so is it, is, it, is it safe to say kind of that the, it's the job of a journalist to be the underdog? To be the one that's getting uh, I'd, I'd put it, I'd put it pushed differently. down? The best position for a journalist, in any bit, by the way, is the opposition. Hmm. Being the voice of the establishment is boring. And, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I was both an investigative reporter and access reporter. So I know, I know it both ways. And uh, being on the investigative side or the annoying side is always more challenging and more fun to the journalist. And most journalists here are people who are always have something rebellious in them, you know, either people who were religious and became secular, or people who dropped out of high schools and colleges, or of, uh, in the Israeli case of, of army units, and so on and so forth. There's always some rebellious side to being mm -hmm. a good journalist. Otherwise, it's PR. As, as George always said, what you, what, what people don't want to see out there is journalism, and what people do is PR. So Haaretz.com is your website in English, right? Yeah. You also have, uh, Haaretz has a Twitter account in English and a Facebook page in English. Yeah. We'll put links to it. You have Twitter, right? I have, but I'm not very active in social <laughs> okay. networks. Okay. Ah, uh, any? Not even Instagram? You did tweet uh, here and there, though. I, I did, but, but I'm not... I'm not uh, Snapchat? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not very okay. active. It, it, it has the, the ability to swallow most of your available time. Yeah, right. Because, yeah. because what, especially Twitter, gets out of people is to be, you know, the smartest guy in the class. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The right, annoying right, smartest right, guy right, in the class. Right. And I spent too many years in, at school playing that role. <laughs> to, to go back to it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, before we go, we have two collaborations. One is with the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. It's a great newspaper and a website in English about Jew Jewish news in the States. So it's jewishjournal.com. And? And the other is Secret Tel Aviv, um, uh, which is a Facebook group that has 170,000 members. Um, it's a great space for recommendations, for discussions, for you guys should check it out, join it. They also have a website, secrettelaviv.com. And that's it. Aruf, thank you so much for joining us and hosting us in your studio. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Good luck. 
Thank, Thank you. you.